Hello and welcome back to This Is Our Design, the Sound on Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I am Sean Coletti, contributing writer at Sound on Sight, and I am joined, as always, by Kate Kolzik, TV editor at Sound on Sight. Kate, I think we share a common, at least recent problem for me. I have a new puppy, and she has been yapping all night long. And I know that occasionally I can hear your dog in the background. <laughs> Not my dog. That does not stop me from being responsible for some walks and general, the delivery person's not going to kill us, calming. <laughs> but uh, it appears to have quieted just in time for our recording, so I'm glad to say that knock on wooden things, it shouldn't be a problem. Well, don't knock too loud, because then that probably will be a problem. That's true. I had not thought of that. <laughs> Good call. This week we'll be talking about Season 1, Episode 9, Through No Monde, which I'm probably pronouncing terribly written by Steve Lightfoot and directed by Guillermo Navarro. And joining us this week is our special guest from Cultural Learnings and the AV Club, Miles McNutt. Miles, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. All right, so let's get right into this. Uh, this episode only gives us really one scene with our killer, played by Lance Hendrickson. Uh, while previous episodes have focused a bit more heavily in certain weeks on the weekly killers. And, and Miles, I'm not so much interested necessarily in if this one works particularly well for you or not, but I think I'm instead more interested in if you have a preference as to how these weekly uh, plots are used, either in terms of the ratio of attention given to them versus the serialized narrative or in terms of how closely or loosely they relate to the other things going on with Will and Hannibal. Well, I think it's interesting because, yeah, like when I when I sat down to this, like I – I re fairly recently binged through the series, and so they sort of blend together. But those episodes sort of stand out, obviously, in the fact that this is really just like it's a visual. We get the visual of the totem pole. It recurs. We're reminded an investigation is ongoing. And then we get the single scene of confrontation that really just becomes sort of a thematic footprint and a statement that we can then read back into the character work. But nine episodes in, I think that's totally doable with the world they've established, with the way the Abigail Hobbs character in particular has sort of remained there on the margins, sort of building in episode by episode. I think that's crucial work for the show to be able to do, and I think that going into this, I don't think a lot of people would go in and say, oh, do you know what? I really wish there was more of this standalone mystery. I, I, just, I just don't think that's a natural response given how – much sort of the Abigail Hobbs mythos, as it were, has been crucial to the character building and the plot building in the context of the season. Uh, I forgot to say up front that, for, again, for listeners uh, tuning in for the first time watching Hannibal, we'll be treating this mostly as a spoiler-free podcast. There will be a section at the end in which we relate some of the events of the episode to future Hannibal events, either from this season or the second season, uh, but that will be clearly marked in the post for which you can fast forward. So, great. Kate, um, I know we've talked about this before in terms of each of these individual plots um, and how effective that they've been used in their episodes, but now that we've gotten nine in and they've been used to varying degrees, I would say that this one is, is much more different than some of the other ones, even with the person trying to do the, the amateur transplants. And I think we only saw one scene with that character as well. Um, is there a pattern that's working better for you. Yeah, I'm with Miles. I think the the interesting part of this show is not the case of the week. Um, 
right now. We're watching Will disintegrate, and it's very possible that there are all these wonderful connections between the totem pole and this particular killer. Obviously, there's themes of disappearing and not being seen. That that is what the killer is seeking, and also what Will is experiencing. He's worried that he is losing himself and that he is a ghost. That's what he tells his imaginary class that the uh, the killer wants to be is a ghost. And so there's some there's some connections certainly between our killer of the week and what's going on. So it's not like it's you know I, I would say there are more connections here than there were with the uh, with the ambulance or sorry the 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 transplant killer of the week, but uh, in that case accidental killer of the week. But but still this is increasingly the show is increasingly focused on our characters and their state of mind. And it's less and less, it's feeling less and less procedural. And I'm a fan of that. Certainly Uh, in relation, I'm curious what you guys think of with the show moving in that direction. How do you feel like they're handling the, the, the text? Because when there was more focus on the procedural elements of the case, just going from step to step to step in the case, we got to see more of them in the lab here. We barely see them. Is that a positive move? For the show? I think in the case of this episode, there's still that opening bit about the, the jigsaw puzzle, which keeps bringing in the humor, which I think is somewhat of a necessary thing at this point and works really well because that's a funny exchange of dialogue. Um, it, If this were to recur, and we could talk about this in the coming weeks depending on if this is a pattern that develops as well um, – then I think that that changes something. But looking back at the episodes that we've talked about so far, it seems that each one has just a core group of characters, usually between two and four, that it's interested in looking at. And sometimes um, that tech unit operates as one of those characters. I think that they've featured pretty heavily in, in previous episodes, especially Beverly. But in this case, I don't... I don't think that I'm necessarily missing it because this is kind of the first um, big Abigail episode since the last one, which has been a little while. Miles, what do you think? Well, I think, too, like thinking about those tech characters is sort of this is a job for them. It's the sort of day to day thing they come in and do. And I think one of the points the show is very much trying to make about Will and Hannibal is that for them, their respective jobs are just this one small part of them as they struggle with this sort of deeper psychological experience. And so you sort of get more and more characters pulled in. I think Jack and Alana are sort of sitting on the edges of that, of sort of like heading in that direction. But this world is still like – it's still – a day-to-day workplace on some level. And I think this case sort of gets at that nicely in that we see them pop up at the beginning. They give exposition at various different points, but they're not all sucked in sort of the psychological drama side of the series. And I think that's important to making this a sustainable model of a television program, which is a lot of what these balancing questions are about, is how long can we actually sustain this type of storytelling when you have central characters that are obviously so much deeper into this on a personal level how can you still have that procedure happening around it and therefore i think the texts have been at to this point in the series well calibrated in that regard and what i was noticing in that opening jigsaw puzzle scene that you referenced sean is and we get a couple other moments with the text throughout the episode as well but 
the the this the scene or the episode opens with Jack and basically Will taking a moment and taking a deep breath and that Will's need to prepare himself tells the audience we should probably do the same before the camera pans over but they don't seem that trio does not seem as taken aback by this tableau as they did say in Coquille um of the angels or in some of these other moments and they're they have the jigsaw puzzle conversation but the performances especially i was noticing with beverly her face she's much uh much less glib she's much more stern in her in her you know lines in her performance the actress's performance in those moments and so i i, I find it interesting that it's either are are they becoming more hardened by these things that they keep seeing is that is that a reflection on I wish that a giant totem pole of bodies was as disturbing to me as it would have been a few weeks ago. Um, it, it, that seems like it's a progression of of where they're at and the, the darkness that they keep being enveloped in as they trace these different serial killers. Or is it just that was the, the scene, that was the moment, but that doesn't necessarily reflect what's going to happen later? That's interesting that you mentioned that because there's a scene later in the episode with the text that I found unintentionally funny, I suppose. Um, and that resistance that you, you're mentioning, uh, the resistance building against seeing all of these gruesome images, uh, it's that scene when Will walks in and they posit that some of these past murders um, seem to be accidental. And he kind of just walks in and is like, no these aren't accidental, they're murders. And then he just walks out. And it's kind of really awkward because we don't get to see anybody's reactions. Whereas I think in previous episodes, you know, we've seen Zeller give, you know, like the what the fuck look to, to Brian um, or to Jimmy, excuse me. But uh, that was kind of just uh, another instance, I think, in which they are becoming more used to not just what's going on, but also to Will's uh, process and the jumps that he makes, I think. Um, Kate, you mentioned the the disappearing of this, the not being seen, how Will talks about the killer wanting to become a ghost. Um, Miles, I was just curious, does this idea also of a character unwittingly destroying his own legacy relate to other things going on in this episode or in the season so far? I think the show is very much – and that's one of the things that I like sort of about the Abigail story more broadly is that you know the idea of writing this book, of Freddie Lowndes coming in wanting to tell her story, the idea of this will live on beyond her and her sort of like trying to determine like what her legacy is going to be. And legacy we can think of as from a professional perspective or from a sort of an actual sort of like reproduction perspective certainly, but it's also just a sense of identity, and I think that – is so crucial to the idea that we stick with Abigail, that we stay with this story. Because I remember when I first started watching the series, I didn't know that the Abigail story was going to recur. I didn't know that was going to be an ongoing part of the season. And I think there, therefore was this nice element of surprise to that, but to see them continuing to commit to that. And the idea that that thing that happened at the very beginning of the series doesn't just sort of stand there as a single statement. Our understanding of it, our sort of evolution of that idea will continue to recur with these characters and will change and evolve accordingly. So I like what that is saying and how sort of that question of legacy, I think, pulls that to the surface in interesting ways. The other way that that moment uh, really worked for me once Lance Henderson's character 
realizes what he's done. Uh, this has perhaps less to do with legacy and more to do with just that brutal surprise and reaction to that. Um, the fact that he now knows that he killed his own son, comparing that to later in the episode when Will realizes that Abigail actually had killed Nicholas Boyle, I think that these are both characters who believe that they were doing something and then it kind of just 180'd on them and fell apart completely. Uh, do we want to mention anything else about um, this character, this killer of the week before we move on? I thought that Henriksen's performance, although he was only given a really brief scene, was, was good nonetheless. I think he's great. I think he's really good in one scene. The, I have in my notes that it's a very convenient, or it's very a very tidy scene, but I think because he wants to be caught, that helps. He's, he's sitting there waiting for them. He wants to be caught. That's why he did the totem pole. Uh, and, and so that's why he's so forthcoming with them. But the fact that, I mean, they, they make it seem like it's, they already have the DNA evidence that he is the son, when in fact it's Will making the leap that, that, that that's what the connection is without him knowing it. And so they present some of the stuff as fact because it's a very effective moment when I was this time watching it through, while it is very satisfying that that dialogue, that exchange, I had a little bit more of a red flag to it, but I do think that the performance is very effective. I forgot he was really, he was only in that like minute or two minutes of the episode. And the last thing I'll say about him is my initial thought watching this was to connect him with Will and Will, what Will is experiencing and what his fears are. Certainly uh, the, the associations he must be seeing between himself and this killer. But obviously there's a lot of connection with Hannibal as well. Cause being the master manipulator and uh, loving, to, you know, when, when the killer talks about enjoying the silence at a funeral, the grief, the, the tangible silence at a funeral and, and knowing that you've caused it. And that feels very much in line with, the manipulations that we know Hannibal uh, likely enjoys. Wait a minute. So you're suggesting there's a parallel between Hannibal and the serial killer? Really? I know. It's, I don't, it was I don't such know. a breakthrough when I realized. Yeah. Oh, see, that's, I'm no, brilliant. No, I, I'm, I'm joking, of course. But no, there's definitely sort of that idea that every one of these characters that comes in this universe, the idea that they – and in this case, they have like a good like – two minutes to try to get across the idea that he has as rich a history as Hannibal does, which is always sort of the test of the serial killers that the show introduces. And I thought this one, the totem pole was very evocative. It told a lot of this person's story before we met him. I thought the performance lived up to that. And there was something sort of deeply cynical and almost funny about his sort of, I can't afford a retirement home, so prison's my retirement home. Just come and get me. I'm, I have everything packed. We're all ready to go. And that there's something very sort of economical about the character and his approach to the circumstance that's a little bit too convenient from a storytelling perspective to be able to focus on the other side of things, but that ultimately I thought was well calibrated to fit the balance the episode was going for. Absolutely. And then just him raising and lowering his hands twice – or his uh, right hand twice, uh, that was easily the best way to end. So a great last shot for that character. Uh, there were two characters in this episode, um, referring to how I had mentioned that there are a central core that each episode seems to focus on, and that's not necessarily the same, um, but two that I wanted to talk about. And, and Miles, I wanted to begin with you and Alana, and between her conversation with Will about her feelings towards him and how she thinks he's unstable, 
and the way that she confronts Jack after Abigail has left the exam room, she's proving herself to be the most honest and upfront character in this series, especially compared to all these other people who are keeping secrets or trying to keep secrets, or in the case of Freddie Lowndes, who are using manipulation as a, a means of getting what they want. Do you consider this naivete, or do you think that this is just another method of interacting with people that she thinks is effective? I think it's a very good question. What I will say from my perspective, sort of Carolyn Davernas' performance, is there's something very sort of solid about it where you don't – she doesn't know what kind of show she's quite in. Um, and I think there's something very good about that for the purpose of the series because Will is in too deep. Hannibal is all too aware of sort of the kind of like the master manipulating he's telling. And I think she is just trying to look out for the people around her, to look out for herself, to look out for Will, to look out for Abigail and for that matter, Hannibal. And so she's reading this situation, not quite having that information that we have. And I think that is crucial to sort of selling this world as anything close to realistic because if everybody in the show is commonly a problem in sort of crime tropes where it's like if everybody on the show is very aware of just like how dark and everything like everything is wrong with this world you always spend your time wondering well why aren't they doing more why aren't they stopping this why doesn't she see Hannibal like we see him and I think we have plenty of reasons why she wouldn't she has really no – none of the background that we have, and I think that's crucial to have somebody in that position who can then push the story forward by, like in this episode, her saying, I have no reason not to trust Hannibal. And we're like, wait a minute. Like seriously now. Like there's so many reasons why we know not to do this, but if you think about their interactions and their past professional experiences, I really think that there needs to be somebody to ground this in the fact that what we know about Hannibal and for that matter, what we know about will is not always going to be right there on the surface. That descriptor of, of solid. It's so key to Alana in this episode, particularly, but in the first season in general, and we can talk more about how that relates to what comes later in the season. And in the second season in spoiled meat, when we get there, but what we've seen with her in this episode and so far that that scene with her and will the the scene that makes every little shipper's heart go pitter pat uh that we get with them with a less solid and grounded performance from her we would really have a problem with alana or at least i would have a problem with alana cuz she would seem flighty like she's toying with will's emotions or or, or uh, doesn't really care for him, but Caroline Davernas just she is rock solid in that scene. She is forthright. She is, uh, very tender, but also very resolute, and she feels not like nothing but just straight up honest. And in a show with this many levels of doubt and uh, people keeping secrets and will not being able to necessarily trust his perception of what's going on around him, it's so key, like you say, Miles, to have that person who is just honest, at least with Will. And when we get her later on in the episode talking with, with Jack, it's more of that same thing. She is the definition of trustworthy and forthright and and with her feet firmly planted on the ground. And while at the same time always seeming very intelligent, and she, she doesn't seem like she's... You know, often the, that kind of character is not 
the quickest or is not the uh, the, mo- the the funniest, but she's all of these things. And I, I it's just so important that she be a grounding figure in, in this episode and in the season. And Davernas does a fantastic job with that. And just as someone who enjoys uh, chipping at times or just different, you know, with someone who has, has an eye out for different types of uh, relationship depictions... I can't think of the last time I saw a scene like this on a show where the, that Alana and Will scene where, where she uh, says basically uh, I'm of two minds and he literally says, are you telling me that to confuse me? They just put it right out there. They don't dance around it. And I love that. It's all too rare. It's wonderful to see here. I could not agree more with that descriptor and what both of you have said about the importance of that in relation to the role and making it believable. And that line specifically, um, when Will says, you're telling me that to confuse me, um, because I think that that Dancy's delivery of that is so nuanced because it's just the right amount of defensive in the context of we're seeing really now his, his mental deterioration. Um, and she's able to respond in a way that I think many other characters would not be able to without bungling the whole conversation and getting him more worried and more defensive. She kind of calms him down. And yeah, just her as the rock, the solid rock, the trustworthy person. We've seen um, instances of Abigail interacting with Freddie, with Hannibal, with Will, and with Alana. And even just as a viewer, I feel most comfortable for Abigail when she's talking with Alana. Um, Not just because some of the other characters are trying actively to manipulate her, in that case, Freddy and Hannibal, but just because um, Alana just kind of brings a a level of comfort to those scenes in some way. So I'm glad that you had both mentioned that because I think that it's really important to this episode. The Uh, other adjective that I want to make sure to mention, I forgot to mention earlier before we move on, is respect because and it's again i talked earlier at the beginning of the season about that uh that lovely description descriptor in i think it's the pilot will talks about how he had to see the opposite to be able to see the negative to be able to see the the original uh image accurately and how many shows do our characters theoretically respectful of each other and they care about each other and they have a balanced relationship but when you compare it to a scene like this, or really all, the way that all of the main characters interact b- between Jack and Will and Hannibal and Alana, they all respect each other so completely. It's a beautiful thing to see. There's never any doubt uh, that while they may disagree, that there isn't tremendous respect between these people. And again, when I see it here, it just throws into stark relief for me how rare it is for me to see that, especially um, on a lot of shows in the love interest relationships they don't they often don't feel balanced and certainly don't feel respectful of each other's um individuality and their uh and their personality and any other number of elements but i just it's such a respectful show between all those main characters uh the other major character that i wanted to talk about in relation to this episode is is jack crawford and there's a moment um when he's introducing the idea about showing Uh, Abigail Nicholas Boyle's corpse and Hannibal says that Jack has the look of a man with no interest in any opinion but his own and I think that this episode perhaps more than any thus far uh, maybe with the exception of the Miriam last episode shows to what 
lengths Jack is willing to go to get the answers that he wants. And he makes sure to expose Nicholas Boyle's entire upper body and not just his face for Abigail to see. And then he stops Alana from covering it back up while he's asking Abigail questions. Uh, We've talked before on this podcast about our relationships as viewers uh, with Jack and Kate, but how do you think the rest of these characters are seeing him right now? Well, uh, he certainly has his heels ground in with Abigail. And I remember the first time I saw this episode, he felt very much like a stick in the mud um, here. But watching it now and getting, you know, knowing what's coming in this episode so I can, you know, watch the reactions more. Um, it's, it just shows you how canny he is. And it's easy to forget because he's in that, the boss role. And, and it's rare, at least on shows that I've seen for the person who's the boss to actually do much detecting on cop shows or actually get, you know, they, they, it doesn't seem like it's as common for shows to highlight the expertise that got that person the job in the first place. And I feel like with Jack, it's easy to forget that he is, compared to most people, an expert in this stuff. So just because Hannibal and, by the end of the episode, Will have a vested interest in obscuring what's going on with Abigail doesn't mean that Jack isn't onto something. And so to have him be as perceptive as he is, he knows something's there, uh, but he has such a different approach to to um, to Alana, and he has different priorities. He doesn't care on the larger scheme of things what happens with Abigail. If it if finding out what happened with all these other girls destroys her, he's much less interested in that because his number one priority has to be to the victims and the families of the victims. And so I, I just I like that he is on to something, even if maybe he doesn't go about it in the most subtle of ways. Jack's rarely a subtle instrument. Almost, almost never, based on some of the outbursts that we've seen. Uh, Miles, is your relationship with Jack Crawford as complicated as some of these characters? Um, yes and no. Um, I think at this stage in the series, sort of, there is an element of there needs to be an administrator. There needs to be somebody who runs the show, who's sort of driving things forward. And his relationship with Will is sort of personal. And so when we meet him at first, he's sort of there, like walking Will through this process. There, sort of welcoming him in, sort of building this dynamic. But I think the issue is is that in this case. Everybody else has such a strong personal relationship to Abigail, Will and Hannibal as father figures, Alana as sort of the closest thing to um, an actual sort of therapist in this circumstance, really sort of helping walk her through this experience. And Jack has none of that. And so it's tough, I think, to take the way he treats her at face value, knowing how the characters that we tend to identify with a little bit more, albeit still in complicated ways, all relate to Abigail on that different level. And so for that reason, I think there's a degree of sort of distance with the character's actions in this episode that I didn't really hold against the character so much as I could tell. It was, again, sort of going back to a lot of the issue of perspective that he is simply operating in the way that he needs to realistically um, given his job and given his opportunities. So I, I do think it's complicated, but at the same time, I think there's something very simple about his approach in the episode that fits his perspective. And it, I think it's also important that we get that scene in which Will 
kind of nervously confronts Jack about having lost his time, although not saying that directly to Jack, just because uh, in that sequence we see Jack somewhat push the issue just to make sure that Will's okay, and he says that if there's a problem that he needs to know about it. And sure, Jack probably has a bunch of intuition and can sense that Will is lying uh, and maybe could push it a little bit further, but he is still doing, like you said, Miles, what he thinks is best. Um, and so that, compared to some of the more stern moments that we get with him and Abigail, I think it does provide the the full breadth of his character, which is a really interesting one. Uh, Miles, you also talked about how the difference between other characters' relationships with Abigail um, might also inform some of our opinions about Jack. I wanted to just talk about Abigail for a little bit as well, uh, who takes matters somewhat into her own hands in this episode, first by considering Freddy's proposal, and then by uncovering Nicholas Boyle's body. And yet she also admits to Hannibal, and indeed we see the flashback at the end of the episode, that she helped her father kill those girls. Are you at all surprised by any of this, and how has your opinion of Abigail evolved over this season? Well, um, I ended up watching this episode so quickly, I wasn't quite so surprised, because I was just kind of moving my way along. I think this would be the kind of week-to-week episode experience of, like, sort of, like, like going back and thinking much more about, okay, what have we seen before? What are we going to see in the future? Where does this character work? But overall, I love it simply because it gives a character agency after it had somewhat been stripped away. The idea is that, you know, she kind of goes in this circumstance as something of a victim and to some degree sort of remains a victim in a lot of ways, even given what happens and what active sort of roles that she played. But there's this risk that she is then just sort of this ward of Hannibal and Will that they feel responsible for her. And the idea that she would take responsibility on her own, that she would have this responsibility, these burdens that she hasn't revealed, I think it just makes the character much more complex and much more interesting. It makes me want to explore that character in and of herself in greater detail. And I don't know if that's necessarily well, – I do know where it's heading, but I don't necessarily sort of think – based on this that I thought she was going to suddenly become this new central character per se, but it was a much richer sort of piece in this puzzle that could connect these other characters in ways that really wasn't there before and that I think uh, does the character in the show a service. Is victim the right word in this case, Kate? Because that's what Hannibal identifies her as. That exchange with the two of them, I I do love that. Um, when she she says I'm a monster, and he's like, "Oh, honey, <laughs> <laughs> I know what monsters are. I know what I'm a monster, and she is. I would say, uh, but compared to you know Hannibal, come on. But uh, yeah, that the thing that I take away. I mean, she yes, she is a victim to some extent. Um, it's hard to know because she also held to perpetrate these crimes, whether or not she uh, was, I think it comes down to how it began and all of this stuff, but she, she is both. I think she's a victim and also a, a, a accidental killer, but certainly an accessory to, to her father's murders. And um, I don't think it needs to be one and not the other. She's clearly very traumatized and by on her own, would not likely have done any of that, at least based on what we've seen so far. That's what I would assess. However, that doesn't change 
change her decisions. It's it's similar to the kids that we get in episode uh, four and Uff, uh, who went home and shot their families. They shot their families. That doesn't mean that they aren't victims of abuse and mind control and all these different things. Um, so it's 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 tricky. the The element that stands out just on a technical level that I'm curious your guys' thoughts on in this episode for me is the flashback looked different to me than the previous flashbacks we get in, uh, is it Entree episode six with, uh, Miriam Lass. I wanted to say it like, this felt like black and white and that felt like brown and white, but that was black and white as well. And I don't know if it was just the lighting, but the, the way that they have the, the, the final victim, well, I guess Gary Jacob Hobbs is final victim. She, she almost glows. I really love the lighting on her. She's wearing a light color or white. Um, but the lighting of it, I thought, made it that scene work for me a lot better in the black and white than some of the technical elements of the previous flashbacks did. How did you guys feel about that? I don't know if I necessarily noticed a difference, but in what you are saying, yeah, to, to me it would be the lighting. Cause, and then I would also say, though, that the Miriam last one, which felt darker, worked well in that way because what we get right before it, is Will, uh, not Will, Jack and Hannibal at the fireplace. And so that's already a dark scene, only sparsely lit by the, the flame. And I think in this one we move from, yeah, it's a very bright kitchen in Hannibal's office to a, a more brightly lit train, obviously with the sun coming through the windows. But uh, that hadn't occurred to me. I don't think I had noticed brown before. Well, it's not brown. I just I remember it being brown, even though it isn't, which is weird. <laughs> I'm crazy. <laughs> well, there's sort of a sort of a sepia tone that I can think you're sort of speaking to. I think in this case, what stood out for me is the idea that we're we're not flashing back to a crime. That's one of the things, sort of, in the episode as a whole. Like we don't actually see the crimes being committed, like and, and like, the murders, as it were. Like even in the case of like we see Will kind of like reconstructing the totem pole, but those bodies are already dead. The deaths are sort of like told in a slightly different fashion. We don't flash back to see him killing them. We see this scene that on its surface is innocuous, that if anybody was observing this, they would not know they were seeing the beginnings of this murder. Is taking place in daylight in a public place with all these sort of people around. And as much as Hobbes is sort of an incredibly creepy presence in that scene, the idea that you could look at it and just think it's a start of a friendship. And I think that serves the purpose of getting at the idea that she was participating in something where she had to kind of put on this face and like pretend she didn't entirely know what was happening. Um, and I think that's – it's a very evocative scene, but I think you're right that there is something different about the way that was shot compared to the last ones, which felt a little bit more – what's the word? I'm, you're right. There's There's something about them that's a little bit sort of not even just darker, but almost duller in sort of tone, which I think is uh, crucial to what they mean for Jack versus what these mean for Abigail. Yeah. Well, and you know what? We also cut in those other ones. We cut off like Jack like looks wistfully into the distance and then we cut to them, whereas this is a much harsher just, you know, they don't prep you for the, the flashback in the same way in this episode. So maybe that's part of it as well. And we do see... We see um, the final victim get stabbed in the heart, but well, yes. but on but... the scale of the various victims and murders and horrible things we've seen, that's like that's nothing. No. That's no nothing for Hannibal. 
Uh, I'll throw in my two cents as well, just regarding Abigail quickly. That uh, I, I definitely agree, Miles. That this kind of all of the things that we see Abigail do in this episode give her more agency, and I think that it really deepens her character. I've been a huge fan of her, um, and obviously, I think that that's colored by what we get after this as well. But even just through these first nine episodes. I know we've had Abel Gideon, we've had Chilton and Bella, but um, I'm always really glad to see Casey roll in the credits just because Abigail's a character who really interests me because of how well she plays some of the other central characters off each other, um, and, and not on purpose, not like she's manipulating them, but just what, what she draws out of them. So um, this, I think, is a very very much a highlight episode for her. I have a quick question about Abigail. Um, and I, I'm with you. I think the first time through, I did not appreciate the performance enough. Now, I I, th- I think she's fantastic throughout the episode, Casey Rolls. Um, when we have that dinner and we have uh, Hannibal and Abigail cleaning up afterwards, first of all, how much time must Hannibal spend doing dishes, seeing as he apparently does them by hand? Because that guy must make a lot of dishes. Anyways, so uh, when Abigail says, will knows doesn't he i'm curious if you guys think that she is only referring to of her culpability in 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 the murder of uh you know the the person who came after them or if she means the cannibalism because during that dinner scene we see her cut into a piece of meat eat it look over to Han- like recognize something and look over to hannibal so i'm pretty sure she goes this is people I remember from my dad. Uh, and if she's asking if Will knows about that as well. I didn't read it that way. Um, but admittedly, I think that's sort of just a sense of she's already sort of confronting so much. To some degree, I don't know how much she has the capacity to be aware of sort of – She, I don't think she is able to confront all of Hannibal's truths when she's having so much trouble confronting her own. <laughs> So for me, she's blocked out that other stuff. But I think you're right that she certainly is sort of understanding in her relationship with Hannibal. She sees more of him than really anybody else does at this stage. I would say in that instance, she's referring to Will knowing about Nicholas Boyle because that's kind of what gives her the the most nervous eyes in the dinner scene with Freddy. Although I did also note that look that she kind of throws to Hannibal, but would she have such a refined palate to know? Maybe, I guess, if, if she had gotten used to it, but uh, that's interesting. I don't know. It just occurred because because of how the they show the, the you know camera down, just stare at the plate, she cuts the meat, she eats the meat, and then she looks at Hannibal. I don't know. I'll have to watch it again. All right. So, uh, so at this point, let's uh, move on to our recurring segments for the part. Po- for the podcast, uh, first of which, of course, is Kate's Classical Corner. So, Kate, what can you tell us about the scoring in Through Noman? Well, first of all, there are two classical pieces uh, used in, in the episode. First, when Hannibal is drawing, at, uh, and then Will comes in, and then later during the dinner. Um, to the Over the dinner, it's the um, Beethoven Pathetique Sonata, the Andante Cantabile Second Movement, which is just one of the most gorgeous things to ever exist it's absolutely 
breathtaking. Like literally I have to remind myself to breathe when I'm listening to a good, uh, somebody who really knows what they're doing, who's playing it. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, pathetique, obviously meaning, uh, pathetic, but in the, in the time, in the context of, you know, when it was titled that by Beethoven, um, or Grand Sonata Pathetique, I think was the original title. It, it means not really pathetic, but sorrowful or grieving. And so just, it's such a absolutely simple, but gorgeous and challenging to play really really well just because of the realities of how sound fades on the piano but um but it's such a perfect choice for that for that scene especially with uh Hannibal and Abigail it's so, it's so absolutely gorgeous and the second movement in particular is really feels to me very supportive and loving um while at the same time being part of this larger uh tragic sort of work it's absolutely gorgeous as for the Hildegard von Bingen uh, oh, Yukari, Yukari, which is the song that's the piece that's used earlier. Are you guys familiar with Hildegard von Bingen? I know nothing, John Snow. Mm, no, 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 I can safely say I'm not. Uh, well, you should look her up because she was awesome. She was badass back in the day. She was a, she was a nun um, who lived from 1098 uh, to 1179. There's some, you know back and forth on on that they think she might have fudged her age somewhat but she was a a mystic she had visions she was an abbess she was a writer a composer a philosopher she put on they put on productions at her abbey of like shows she was a somebody that like the popes would go get you know consult her and kings and she was just an amazing, amazing woman, and her music has comparatively recently been discovered. Um, and she's so she also a fabulous composer. This is a, a piece that's in that's in Phrygian, which is one of the the church modes, and it's about um, it's about Saint Eucharist, Eucharius, I should say, uh, who was the first bishop of Trier, which was a city she had a lot of connection to, because that's where the city where her visions were deemed authentic by the church. But, um, but anyway, so the, he was a saint. He, uh, he, he, it was said to have raised people from the dead with the staff of St. Peter. Um, and so part of the, the lyrics translated, um, are, uh, speaking of, of, of Jesus or of Christ or of God, um, you loved him with a perfect love when terror fell on your friends who being human had no strength to bear the, the brightness of the good and, uh, but you, in the blaze of utmost love, drew him to your heart when you gathered the sheaves of his precepts. And then in the last stanza, pray for this company now, pray with resounding voice that we not forsake not Christ in his sacred rites, but be, become, but become before his altar a living sacrifice. So I feel like Hannibal is egotistical enough to see himself as Christ. So this notion of... Um, pray that we do not forsake him um, in his sacred rites, but become a living sacrifice to him when put to the test, when our friends are in danger. And so to have that be the, the, the music that he's just kind of listening to, there hasn't been any other music of this time period on the show. It sounds completely distinct from the other pieces we've gotten, particularly being vocal um, and not, this is Renaissance music. This is uh, sorry. This is medieval music. It sounds completely different than the Baroque and uh, classical and romantic music we've gotten since. Um, and so to have it come come out when Will first comes in and confronts Hannibal about Abigail, um, but then have it sort of rise back up as it does as as Hannibal kind of 
pulls Will over to the dark side about keeping the secret from Jack, I think is really interesting. And it's absolutely, it's a gorgeous piece. And Hildegard von Bingen was an awesome lady. So you guys should look into her just, you know, to know something about a really fabulous woman. Yeah. I mean, I don't know anything about anything, but it did seem like uh, that that was the only piece that we've gotten from whatever period it was. And to know that it's medieval, that is good. Uh, Miles, this would be the time where I would invite listeners, if you do have any knowledge about music, which I don't have to respond in any way that you'd like. Um, (laughs) Well, it's one of those cases where I think so much of the sort of scoring and going through it, it's something that, that is highly kind of, it's a big contribution to the mood of the show. I think I obviously like thought about the fact that it was there but in binging it i definitely never stopped to think i wonder what that piece of music was and i think that sort of like stopping period is so much a part of sort of watching it week to week and sort of going back to it and so i sort of the way this kind of forces it's like well no let's think okay what was this particular element and i think the music sometimes being how often it's used as ambiance or a sort of background can get lost in that conversation so um i'm glad to have it and we'll look her up asap um the the only other this is really like you were saying miles the music in this episode in particular it's really restrained it's very much background it's like tension music throughout there's not really melodies until the very end with the cello um in the flashback but um there's this water drop motif. I don't know if you guys picked, noticed that, but in the Will and Hannibal scenes, uh, it's I don't know if it's just the sound of water dripping out of a faucet or something, or if it's an actual like a percussion instrument. But I noticed it um, particularly. It, it happens in each of their scenes with where it's just the two of them, um, and it, it's briefly when Will's in the lab um, before he goes to find out about Nicholas's body having been found. But it comes in in that 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 second scene particularly it's when hannibal is fingering his scalpel and decide basically deciding if he's going to kill will in that moment um for having you know no when he will says he hasn't told anyone about abigail he kind of toys with his scalpel is he gonna you know um and so i think that's that's sort of uh, funny kind of instead of going the water drop motif continues but then it gets overtaken by the music so when hannibal is able to start basically drawing with Will, using Will as a tool in the way that he is using his pencils at the start of the scene when the music is first playing, uh, then, the, then the water drop goes away and the, the music comes out instead. So I just, I, and again, I'm sure I'm overanalyzing this, but I thought it was fun. This is, this is our design. Overanalyzing is the only thing that we do. Good times. <laughs> so we'll move on to the second of our recurring segments, which is the devil in the details. So any little things in the episode that stood out, such as uh, certain visuals, lines of dialogue, um, performance nuances. This, again, was directed by Guillermo Navarro, who is a very well-respected film uh, DOP and cinematographer who has worked extensively with uh, Guillermo del Toro on his films. Uh, the first thing that I'll begin with was the line that Hannibal says to Will, if you go to Jack, then you'll murder Abigail's future. And just that decision to use the word murder um, was a clever idea on uh, writer Steve Lightfoot's parts, just to add that emphasis to make Will feel more like a killer. Um, but Miles, any details for you that stood out in this episode? 
I have two. Um, the first is I'm actually in the process of um, working on a dissertation where I'm talking about location managers and about kind of location scouts and sort of the process of locations. And so I was really struck by the location that starts the episode where the totem pole was. Um, I don't know where in Ontario it is, um, but ultimately I thought that was a really sort of the wintry beach as being sort of so crucial and so empty. There's such an emptiness to that location that it's really just the totem pole we're paying attention to. And I thought like when they when they were going through him sort of reenacting the crime and the way like when people disappeared, it was like it was just becoming this emptiness, like this dreamlike space. I thought that was very evocative and very effective. And the other thing I'll say is that when Will was um, going through and reenacting things, um, he suggested that according each its rightful place. And while I know he was using rope and not cord, it was still a very fun pun. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll go off of that because one of the things I have, um, and I don't know if they were thinking about this on the show at all, but with the p- totem pole, people always say like at the top of the totem pole or whatever – but the bottom spot on the, on the totem pole is actually the place of honor. So the higher you are on the totem pole, and you actually look at you know look into what totem poles are supposed to mean, that it's the it's less honor. So to have his final victim, the one that he had the least regard for, theoretically, um, be the, be the top of the totem pole makes sense in that context as well. And I don't know if the killer knows about that element of totem poles, but I I enjoyed that that touch as well um the other main thing i have in in my notes is the so we've talked about on um, the televerse uh, sean and i have talked about eat the rude cast which is another handle podcast and i've been enjoying listening to you know catching up with their podcast and they have me thinking about colors more so i was noticing blue because that's something they talk about and um, they do such a great job if you you know if you're interested in that stuff check out the eat the rude cast um but they had me noticing blue and there's blue everywhere in the costuming uh, but in particular, uh, and, then, and then later we have uh, uh, Alana in red. She's wearing a red uh, skirt and then a, a pinkish, orangish red top. And then, uh, but but throughout the rest of the episode, Hannibal, whenever he's with uh, in scenes with Abigail, is wearing uh, is wearing blue. At the end of the episode, he's wearing the same shade of blue in his tie and his shirt. That is her bedroom wall at the, that facility. So it's like he's re- replaced that establishment as her rock as it were as as her home which i think is really neat and then earlier before she confesses to hannibal uh abigail's wearing a red t she just a little bit of a red t-shirt but it's covered with this giant heavy uh dark blue which is almost the same shade of dark blue that hannibal's usually wearing in his suit so there was a lot of really great color stuff in the costuming that i i enjoyed when we have jack and elana and will together getting talked uh, with Hannibal all talking together um Will is in plaid but it's like a reddish plaid while Abigail well Alana's wearing red and Hannibal is wearing a dark blue but a windowpane plaid suit so like there's Will's kind of in between the two of them and just there's a lot of really fantastic costuming uh, color and texture design and again I just keep saying Tom and Lorenzo Take up Hannibal. I would love to read their takes on the costuming in Hannibal. But that those are my main my main things. A uh, couple other things that I'll just mention when Abigail is admitting to Hannibal what she has done. Uh, she kind of struggles at first and just Mickelson's delivery of I can't hear you. It just sounds so sinister and it's like he really wants her to admit to being well, not a monster, but uh somebody who has participated in that. So that was 
a, a great choice of dialogue and a great delivery of that dialogue. I thought, um, what else? That Freddy is a vegetarian. That's a good touch. Was this the first time that we knew that? I, th I think so. Yeah. Had, Bella mentioned earlier not wanting, was it uh, pate? Yeah. Uh, but other than that, I think everybody's been a meat eater so far. So that, that definitely separates her. And also, any theories as to how the totem pole got put up after it was constructed? Any theories on how Abigail went to Minnesota and dug up a body without people knowing where she was or how she... She's in Virginia, and she went to Minnesota. That is ridiculous. It is absurd. I admittedly still don't entirely understand U.S. geography, but I'm going to agree with you just because. <laughs> One is in the middle of the country to the to the west of the Great Lakes, and one of them is on the Atlantic Ocean. They're not close. So two questions that will not be answered by us. <laughs> we'll move on to the final of our recurring segments and the newest one, of course, which is spoiled meat. So if listeners have only been watching along with the first season up to this point and have not seen future episodes and would like to remain spoiled free, then please fast forward now. Uh, Miles, did you want to begin by mentioning anything in relation to, to future Hannibal episodes? Um, the only thing I was going to say is, and I mean, I might have already said this earlier, I, I, I was thinking at the very least, but like the beekeeper um, example, and I am not going to be able to pronounce these season two episodes um, at all, but um, in sort of um, in uh, Takiawaze, um, let's go with that for now. Um, but I thought that was the example that came to mind for me of something that's used very sparingly. And like when I went back to revisit that episode for an AV Club feature, I had almost forgotten just how little it's there. And so I think... And yet, at the same time, it's not as though the show just drops it entirely. The episodes that come after this, there's still kind of episodic storylines. They still like the structure that gives them. And I think that's going to stick with it well into however many seasons this show has. There's sort of a structural sort of component. But here we see their willingness to shift that balance at, I think, a key time in the season and a key time in the series. So I think this is, in some ways, it doesn't signal the show abandoning its structure, but it signals its willingness to abandon it on occasion. Definitely. Uh, and for those curious, we're not going to talk about it here because spoilers for season three. Uh, for those curious, there seem to be some very specific structural elements that are coming up for season three that were talked about at Comic-Con that are interesting and uh, I would connect what you said to that. Um, but only so those who know what I'm talking about, will know what I'm talking about. And those who don't, but want to know, go uh, onto YouTube and find the Hannibal panel from Comic-Con. Cause there's the, the, the show's use of various structural elements, I think is really interesting both so far and moving forward. What I have, the main things I have here, uh, first of all, Will and Hannibal, when Will's like, I think I need to get a brain scan. And Hannibal's like, pay no attention to that. And Seth <laughs> yeah. in the corner. <laughs> I mean, I was like, oh, Hannibal. And then uh, when we had that Jack and Will conversation, first of all, that's got to be the least reassuring. It's it's fine. Like, ever. Um, but uh, Jack, that's got to be a conversation Jack is going to be looking back on uh, in a very different way at the end of the season when, you know, when, when Will gets framed. Because... If there ever were, I think I might be a serial killer without uh, knowing it, that would be that conversation. Um, and then also both Alana and and Jack are trusting their instincts in this episode. Jack should have trusted his instincts more and doubted Hannibal, taken him to the next level. Because as Alana says, 
even if she doesn't trust Abigail, she trusts Hannibal. Uh, Jack knows something's wrong with Abigail, but isn't willing to go that next step and say, well, then that means something's wrong with Hannibal. Um, and then with Alana, if only she says that she can't be reckless and get involved with uh, get involved with Will. If only she hadn't been reckless in season two when she was unstable and got involved with Hannibal. You mentioned um, the difference between Alana and Jack following their instincts. Yeah, the, just the fact that Alana pointed out that she knows that Abigail is burying something there that she's not willing to express. It just shows how strong Alana's intuition is and how unfortunate that um, the, the past experiences that she's had with Hannibal have kind of clouded her judgment so that she has no reason not to trust him. And obviously that plays a huge role in season two and may or may not have gotten her killed. I guess we'll find out. Um, oh, yeah. we never said Traunormand is brandy and is a is like a palate cleanser course. And I don't like brandy, but I'm drinking a mojito because that's a palate cleansy kind of light thing for me. Sean, are you drinking it with this podcast? I avoided talking about it because I'm not because I'm going to an intense exercise session after this. Mm. So, Fair enough. Yeah. I made a mojito, though, and that takes effort. So I'm mentioning it. <laughs> it does. So uh, Hannibal would appreciate the effort that you took to make the drink. Mm. Uh, the other thing I'll mention, and you already touched on it, was... Um, how much further Will's kind of losing it. I'd forgotten that um, at least Hugh Dance's performance of it, that he was like genuinely worried about it. So as soon as he wakes up and he's outside of Hannibal's office and then in the office, he's, he's really uncomfortable and bothered in a way that I didn't remember. I kind of had only remembered those clock scenes and Will just kind of being somewhat nervous, but uh, yeah, no, he's, he's verging on terrified here, which I thought was really effective. This is the first time we've seen Will be the victim shift into that role. And clearly when he's projecting with uh, Nicholas, uh, with that, that, that body and he, he becomes the victim, um, it's really, it seems like it's, it's not a choice he's made. It's just because he, he seems terrified by that and very surprised. That happens again in season two with the, with the eye, but he's also a killer. Okay. What do you think guys think about that? Does that happen again? I'm not remembering another example. I am not either. Nothing comes to mind. So I just thought that was notable. Certainly, yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll keep a, a lookout for that, I think, in, in future episodes. Um, but for now, that'll conclude Spoiled Meat. Is there anything that either of you wanted to mention or ask about in relation to this episode before we wrap up? I think the one thing I was going to say, um, just in general and sort of thinking through it, is this was an episode, and I, I, this isn't necessarily a point of spoiler, but just sort of relevant, where I felt the weight of the following season and a third in a very big way. Like, compared to some where I'm like, oh, well, there's that one thing that happened that resonates with future events. This was an episode where, in part, just based on the stories being told, on the themes sort of being dealt with, on the way this sort of like event sort of took hold, I really do think that this is an episode that does sort of unlock kind of greater meanings in itself when considered in the span of the entire series. And that's, I think, a good one to revisit in sort of the grand scheme of the show heading into a third season. All right. Well, that'll wrap up this discussion. Kate and I will be back next week to talk about season one, episode 10. Buffet Foie, 
I, I, that might be the right pronunciation. Go with it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, once again, thank you very much to our guest, Miles McNutt. Miles, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Um, you can find me at cultural-learnings.com. I'm currently writing about Lost for the AV Club um, in its first season. And um, you can also find me on Twitter at M-E-M-L-E-S. And just bear in mind, listeners, that this will have gone up several weeks after we have recorded. So yeah, Miles might be finished with Lost Season 1. How far are you into it right now? Um, I'm, I think there was, there's at least two more weeks um, after this one. So we'll see. But um, there, is, there is a whole set of reviews from the first season. People can go back and revisit in that case. And they should. And Kate, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Well, I'm on Twitter at the Televerse, and of course, the Televerse is the the TV podcast for Sound on Sight. That when this goes up, Sean's been my fabulous co-host all summer, and we still have several more weeks while we're recording this. By the time this goes up, we may have bid adieu to to Sean as my co-host. I'm not sure, but anyways, you can listen to me talk about all things TV on the Televerse every week, going up Tuesday nights or Wednesday mornings. Um, also, you can find my writing at Sound on Sight. You can also find me at the AV Club, where over the summer I've been reviewing Blackadder and Spartacus, Season 1, Blood and Sand. Um, it's been a lot of fun with both of those, but mostly just you know hit me up on Twitter, because I love talking about this stuff, and it's always a good time. And I'm also on Twitter at my name, at Sean Coletti, and you can find some of my past reviews at soundonsight.org or at tvovermind.com. But that's it for this week. Once again, thank you listeners for tuning in. This has been another episode of This Is Our Design.